On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we celebrate our fourth year and announce a major new addition to our regular podcast, discuss the COVID-19 vaccine, the new CDC order on international travel, and in our focus segment, we'll discuss peer review. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Welcome to episode 121 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for January 17th, 2021. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and he is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory, accreditation, and finance issues. Well, that was take three. It was. <laughs> <laughs> As we begin our fourth year of the podcast, you'd think we'd get the at I least know. the intro done. But, but then again, I had to, like, you know, spice up the script a little mm-hmm. bit there on you. But, yeah, four – this is beginning yeah. our fourth year. Yeah. yeah. 2018, we started um, – and you remember those days because we, we were doing it in our dining room. Yes, but I was not. You were not. I was around. You were around. But that's right. Not. So we started out with uh, Judy D'Ambrosio mm-hmm. was our first host. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, Jenna, Jenna helped, for uh, helped for a while. And then you yeah. became our permanent co-host. Yeah. It was that same year, though. It was like uh, uh, mm-hmm. April, I think. Uh, and you've been doing this for a long yeah. time. I'm kind of a, a you know. I don't want to say a captive audience because I'm not listening. <laughs> you can't go anywhere. You know, <laughs> it's like you're the easiest one. Just come on down. And <laughs> it is It is nice, though, not to be doing it. Because remember what we did in the dining room? Our dining room had all of the equipment was on the outside of the dining room. Mm-hmm. And then we would set it up. And then after a while, we just gave up and left it set up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. meant we can't didn't really have a dining down room. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we built the... Uh, uh, the studio that wasn't uh, we built the studio just very recently actually we were actually working out of the office for a while so we've come a long way and I mean I wish people could see a picture of all the equipment we have here with all the screens and the high tech equipment and we've come a long long way in that yeah. in that uh, three years that uh, we've been doing it so thank you to our our loyal audience 
We get a lot of feedback about uh, the job we're doing. Uh, the happiest I think I, I get is when I, when somebody says, it's thanks to you that we passed the survey. And I, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm i sure there's a lot more involved in, than just us yeah. doing it. You know, people being dedicated, obviously, to, uh, you know, following the regulations and putting all that hard work in. But it's nice to be part of that process and be, being with you for the last, uh, you know, three years. So... To that end, we do have some big news, though. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, Sue, and and Mm -hmm. whenever they announce big news, it's usually like the podcast is ending. (laughs) And uh, fortunately, that is not what we're announcing. But we are actually going to be adding another podcast. So it will be still called the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, but there's going to be a staff edition now. Now, we've been debating for the last couple days as to what exactly to call this. So for now, uh, we're just going to call it the staff edition. And what we had found when we were doing interviews of uh, some of our listeners is that uh, sometimes our administrators that listen to the podcast would take sections of the podcast or ask the employees to listen to a podcast Mm. that was really relevant to them. So in in that discussion, we kind of realized maybe we can put together these shorter like 15-minute clips that you could use during a staff in-service. So we're going to kick that off this Mm -hmm. week with – what will be labeled episode 122, and it's going to just say right on the name of it, uh, ASC Podcast with John Gailey, Staff Edition. Okay. Um, and then we'll see how that goes. You know, if we have to create a separate podcast, we might do that also. Um, it's uh, This is very exciting, though. I think uh, as we were doing some brainstorming, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. we were doing some brainstorming with your daughter, uh, yep. Amy, who is one of our consultants. She gave us a couple of wonderful suggestions mm-hmm. as to type of content we could put in there. So, you know, things that we might be dis- discussing, like this, uh, this episode, we're going to talk about COVID-19, kind of give an update on that and the vaccine, the travel rule. Might talk about sharp safety, hand hygiene. I don't know why we would want to talk about hand hygiene, but it is a very important thing. <laughs> Radiation safety, which is uh, an mm-hmm. in-service that you probably all need. You know, talking about fire safety, reminding people of race and past. Not that you don't have other ways of doing it, but to you know, put together something that people yep. can remember maybe just before a survey when a surveyor comes in. Emergency preparedness, talking about consents and timing, for example, HIPAA, high tech, advanced directives, respiratory protection programs. So we have a whole bunch of ideas that uh, we're going to be rolling out over the next couple months. And uh, those will be recordings that you can probably use for even a couple years in your, uh, your staff in services. So very excited about that. And Sue, I headed down to New York City to visit my car. Um, For those that uh, listened uh, to the last episode, I did have an auto accident um, a couple weeks ago, and my car is still in New Jersey right now and uh, uh, still trying to figure out how much it's going to cost to repair it. So I I went and visited my poor car and got all of the the, uh, stuff, shall we Mm -hmm. say, out of the car. So my other car is a Mustang. So trying to fit all of the stuff that you have inside of a Cadillac <laughs> yeah. inside of a Mustang is no easy task. Trust me, you, you know because you've seen the car when I came home. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's quite a way to begin the year, unfortunately. But my main purpose in going to New York City was to get the vaccine. Triple uh, H C did issue a letter to all of us surveyors, basically giving us authorization to be uh, considered an essential worker. So uh, one of my centers in New York City uh, volunteered to give me the vaccine. And unfortunately, approximately an hour before I was going to get the vaccine, um, the Department of Health uh, came in and took all of his vaccines for some some other purpose, which we must assume was much more important than uh, than the staff of the surgery center. So it looks like I'll be going back again this week. They did promise that they would get another uh, shipment in this week, mm-hmm. but 
That's a disappointment. And I, I guess that gets to the, the next thing I want to talk about is the vaccine. I know in talking to our surgery centers, there are a number of individuals uh, in these centers that are concerned about the vaccine and the safety of the vaccine. And I know that, you know, we have uh, prominent individuals that are, you know, showing themselves getting the vaccine, you know, that showing their confidence in the safety of it. So, Sue, I, I had you do a little bit of research on this, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but if you can just talk a little bit about uh, the vaccine, uh, how it works, uh, and one suggestion that you made uh, with regard to uh, staggering staff. Okay, well, we are going to talk more about this in the sort of staff edition, right? Right, where we're going to delve a little bit more into the vaccines. But and and so the reason I'm doing that is a couple of my uh, centers did say mm-hmm. this week that they're getting a lot of questions from staff about the vaccine. Yeah. What yeah. we would consider as all of us, I mean, all of us that are involved in this, the administrators, nurse managers, I think we know an awful lot about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And uh, this the individual suggested that we talk about it in a podcast so mm-hmm. that she didn't have to keep talking to all of her staff about it. So yeah. whereas yeah. we just assume that everybody knows about it, that really isn't the case. So mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, we will talk about it in a much more depth in the, in the uh, staff edition. But I'm yep. sorry, I didn't no, that, interrupt you. That's okay. Um, the one point I did want to make here is that as you're scheduling vaccines, you may want to stagger the timing for your staff or if nothing else, just plan your scheduling of procedures and your scheduling of staff, maybe maybe bulk up how many staff you have on for the couple of days after, especially the second dose of the vaccine, because often people are having some fatigue, maybe fever, body aches. Um, some people may end up not even be, being able to come into work. I've heard from other centers that people do come into work, but they're you know just kind of fatigued and not up to their their normal standard of work. So you may have to have a few extra people on or, or just allow for, for a slower schedule on those days. And if somebody has had COVID, they'll often have those responses, that kind of more severe response to the first vaccine. But for most people, they'll get through the first vaccine just fine, but it's that second dose that you might just want to be aware of. And I wanted to mention an AORN online survey that I noticed in my email. Um, it's for perioperative nurses with um, the questions are going to be concerning their, the nurses' experiences during the pandemic and how it may influence their intent to stay in the workforce. So if you're a member, I would think about participating in that. It's a 15 to 20-minute survey, and I think it's important to have the perspective from an ASC nurse. It's good information to gather because I know it's been a difficult time for a lot of people. And we've talked about this in a previous uh, podcasts, actually, the concern that we have about the future of the workforce, especially mm-hmm. the older <laughs> more seasoned individuals mm-hmm. in the workforce here that uh, might be just, you know, considering, you know, leaving. And and I certainly understand that. We've already seen that, especially with uh, senior nurses like, like in management positions. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons we're doing the, the administrator's boot camp is because there's been so much turnover, yeah. you know, very yeah. recently. And you can understand somebody in the ICU, they've seen a lot of illness and death. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, in all other areas, like you said, in the perioperative area and the ASCs and any type of ambulatory care, You've, you've just been overstressed and overburdened and afraid of being exposed and, yeah. you know, all those different concerns. And then the CDC had an order this last week that uh, we perhaps need to talk about, uh, especially for anybody that's planning on going on vacation. So, so you and I will actually be heading down to Hilton Head, but at least it's in the country. But I understand the CDC order uh, has to do with international travel. So there was a recent CDC order concerning testing for airline passengers that are entering the U.S., whether they're 
a citizen of another country or whether they're returning to the U.S. as a U.S. citizen. Um, the order came out on January 12th, and it goes into effect on January 26th. So the testing must be done within three days before boarding the flight. Um, and this is going to apply whether you've been vaccinated. The one exception is if you have had COVID-19 and recovered, you can get written permission from a healthcare provider or a public health official. And in that case, you'd have to bring your positive test result um, I believe it has to be within the three months prior. So it has to be a fairly recent infection. And then the written permission letter saying that you've recovered, you're no longer contagious. So to quote from the CDC's page, air passengers are required to get a viral test, which would be a nucleic acid amplification test or an antigen test, basically a test for current infection, not the antibodies, within the three days before the flight to the U.S. departs and provide written documentation of their laboratory test results. It can be a paper or an electronic copy to the airline and provide documentation or provide the documentation of having recovered from COVID-19. The airlines must confirm the negative test results of all passengers or documentation of recovery before they board. If a passenger does not provide that um, or chooses not to take a test, they have to deny boarding to that passenger. So the CDC recommends that travelers get tested, and this is more a recommendation, whereas the first one was stated as an order. Um, the CDC recommends that travelers get tested three to five days after travel and stay home or otherwise self-quarantine for seven days after travel. Um, and even if you test negative, they recommend staying home for the seven days. So currently, people probably know uh, passengers from the UK are required to show test results in the lobby before they board the plane. Now, what they're looking at is um, some airlines may use an app called Verify, V-E-R-I-F-L-Y, which will be available on January 23rd for passengers to upload the required documents. Now, this seems so onerous to me because yeah. really, I mean, you can't get test results sometimes here within where, five where days. you're familiar yeah. with your surroundings. If you're in another country and, and you, have to, you have to test within those three days before it leaves. And then I did read on their site that if you're... Um, plane gets delayed, if it pushes you past that three, three days, day. you have to start over. You have to then go get tested, oh, which wow. means then you're waiting for results, which, you know, it it just, it, it's a lot. And we know from New York's experience with uh, requiring testing for surgery that getting it done within the three days is mm -hmm. very difficult, even in the best of circumstances. Um, yeah. So five, uh, uh, and that's why they expanded it to five days. So, mm -hmm. but this one is more restrictive. Yeah. And it does so, seem like it can be more of a rapid test type thing, but... Um, and there are a few people that are excluded, but it looks like it's only, you know, law enforcement right. it, that's on the job and, of course, the airline crews. So um, it almost just seems yeah, like don't it's go international. Yeah. Well, I guess we, you and I won't be leaving the country, but well, we weren't going to <laughs> we weren't anyways, going anyway. <laughs> darn, to cancel our trip. Well, and a number of our, our clients have mm -hmm. expressed uh, deep concerns for this, especially with, yeah. uh, you know, February, March coming up. Like you and I always take time off in February and or March. Um, you know, because it tends to be a downtime in up, it's up in upstate New York, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's really going to be the case when we go on vacation. We tend to work from our condo and, yeah. you know, but as this uh, one client, you know, commented, a number of people are going, you know, usually go back to, in this case, uh, she's talking about Israel, going back mm -hmm. to Israel, mm -hmm. uh, and then coming back from there and, and the, the problems that they're going to have. So she's going to have to put, she's, actually considering putting pretty severe restrictions mm -hmm. on employees yeah. and their travel and basically telling them what, well, basically indicating that they're going to have to follow these rules. So Yeah, and I think probably <laughs> if it's someplace you, that is really, really important to go and yeah. you 
you're determined to go. Probably if you just check ahead, make sure you have it really lined up that this is when you're going to get tested, that you are going to have the test back in time because that would get expensive too. You don't want to end up missing a flight because your test is an hour late. Right. Yeah, and I bet they're not going to refund your money for that. No. So, okay, well, let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll uh, talk about peer review. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently, if you wish, uh, review and revisions to your infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. So, Sue, peer review has uh, popped up recently as one of the more uh, challenging issues that some of our centers have been facing, and uh, it has been coming up on surveys uh, or and especially on uh, new clients. We've been picking up quite a number of new clients uh, recently, and uh, this seems to be a challenge in each of those centers that we've been uh, working with. So, uh, peer review is, is certainly not new to doctors. This is what I find 
very interesting is that they've any any of those doctors that have worked in hospitals have had to deal mm-hmm, with peer mm-hmm. review uh, mm-hmm. over the years. And, and and as a matter of fact, in in those situations, they're usually required to participate yeah. in peer review. But then they give you such a hard time at the ASC. It's really <laughs> I know it's very frustrating. They often yeah. think they can escape ongoing peer review mm-hmm. activities by working in an ASC, yeah. and this, of course, is not true. And and I think you know, truthfully, many ASCs really try to make this as simple as possible for mm-hmm. the doctors. Um, and you know, many don't require all doctors to participate in the peer review process, but really you should, uh, you know, a well-functioning, um, uh, surgery center should have, uh, you know, ongoing performance or, you know, uh, participation from everybody and, and, mm-hmm. and sharing that load among everybody, uh, will certainly make the job easier for those that are, that are doing it. There's a, really a number of common mistakes, um, that we run into, um, that, I, that I've seen over the years. You know, one is, um, having the medical director peer review all the files. Now, we have to remember that peer review is, you know, we have to focus on that word peer, meaning that it has to be an individual that is in the same specialty. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you don't want a medical director who might be an anesthesiologist peer review in an orthopod. Um, and, and we can go on and on, but I think we get the point there is that it has to be somebody within their own specialty. Um, Another, you know, common mistake is having one doctor do all the peer reviews. That that happened in one of our centers, you know, 15 years ago. I remember the the the, uh, the medical director was an orthopedic doctor, and he did all the peer reviews for everybody, and that wasn't any more acceptable than than having the medical director or the anesthesiologist do that. And another thing we see a lot is having the nurse fill out the peer review file, and just having the doctor sign off on the peer review. And and we actually see that. Quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. especially when we're taking over a new center. We'll find, you know, the nurses sit down and, you know, they do all this stuff and then they just walk into the doctor's office or, mm-hmm. you know, catch him in between procedures and sign off on it. And that kind of goes uh, with the next one that you've got uh, noted here is assuming that peer review is just making sure that the forms exist and that the signatures are on all the forms that the, all the, you know, boxes are checked. Are checked yeah. It's more of a, of a nursing review, making sure that everything's complete. The peer review is more based on that medical judgment and, right. and making sure that someone of appropriate or of similar training would have made those same judgments. Right. So generally, those those questionnaires that, that are going to be filled out, we're going to talk about that in a bit, but you want the doctor to be making some decisions. Did this patient come in to have surgery done mm-hmm based upon a medical diagnosis that's appropriate for the surgery that's being done. Mm-hmm. You, did the uh, operative report indicate all the things that showed that, uh, you know, good high-quality care was was provided? Was, you know, what was performed exactly what was scheduled? And, again, fitting in with the diagnosis. Uh, were there any complications? And if there were complications, were they handled appropriately? And, by the way, that even goes for vitrectomies. You know, I know this. we talked about this before, mm-hmm. that vitrectomies are a complication, and many doctors refuse to ignore Knowledge that it is a complication. Now, it's not perhaps you know one of those complications that we have to do a lot of follow up on, uh, but it is certainly a complication that has to be acknowledged. And then you know, uh, uh, was the discharge handled properly? You know, should, was this uh, candidate was this patient a proper candidate for the surgery that was performed? And you know, based upon the pathology that came back, you know, did that support everything else that was done? So that's what real peer review should be. Uh, and then we're going to talk about that chart review is not the only thing that uh, would make up peer review. But let's go through first, before we get into that, let's go through what peer review requirements are. And Sue, why don't we just start with the the, uh, the conditions for coverage? Okay, so from the conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines, 416.45b, the ASC's governing body must have a process reappraising 
the medical staff privileges granted to each practitioner. CMS recommends a reappraisal at least every 24 months. The reappraisal must include review of the practitioner's current credentials and the practitioner's ASC-specific case record, including measures employed in the ASC's Quality Assurance Performance Improvement Program, such as the emergency transfers to hospitals, post-surgical infection rates, and other surgical complications. The ASC's governing body should use a similar process, including the recommendation of qualified medical personnel for the periodic reappraisal as it is used when initially granting privileges. And based on the evidence, the ASC's governing body must decide whether to continue the practitioner's current privileges without change or to amend those privileges by contracting or expanding them or by withdrawal of the practitioner's privileges entirely. The ASC must also reappraise a practitioner any time that the practitioner seeks to perform procedures outside the scope of previously granted procedures. The ASC should also develop triggers for reappraisal of privileges outside the periodic reappraisal reappraisal schedule. It's like a tongue twister with no. <laughs> <the> reappraisals. <laughs> In the case of an ASC whose sole member of the governing body is also a member of the ASC's medical staff, it would be advisable to seek the recommendation of outside qualified medical personnel who review not only the physician's credentials, but also evidence of the physician's performance in the ASC. So what's difficult about the interpretive guidelines is it never actually uses the word peer or review. Mm -hmm. oh, well, it does mm -hmm. talk about review. Yeah. It, it refer. I mean, it's clearly um, implied, you know, by mm -hmm. this, because the only way that you can carry out all of those, what is it, six items there, is by having a peer actually look at it. Uh, and determine that the, the uh, performance was appropriate. So, uh, again, uh, 41645B is the CMS or the Medicare requirements that uh, that show us that we have to do ongoing peer review. And, I, I, by the way, Sue, while I was uh, researching all this, uh, I did realize that some of the states have peer review-specific stuff. Now, I did yeah. not know okay. that. Um, and what popped up in particular was California. So, uh, if you are from California, uh, visit the uh, uh, CASA website, the California Association website, and I'm sure that they have a lot of information about peer review in that state. Just Googling it, there was a lot of information available, especially from lawyers, I think, that mm -hmm. were uh, putting together programs there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about accreditation standards, and let's start with HHC. Uh, I'm going to make Sue do joint commission because it's much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but HHC is pretty specific, and that's what I, uh, I like about uh, the way they word it. So that's why, uh, you know, when we're putting together a peer review program, if you follow uh, the format that that uh, HHC uses, you're, there's no doubt that you're going to you're going to meet the requirements. So. Uh, in HHC, it is subchapter 3 of chapter 2, uh, and this is what it says. An accreditable organization maintains an active and organized process for peer review that is integrated into the quality management and improvement program. Accredited organizations may determine which healthcare professionals can peer review each other within the following guidelines. It needs to be, number one, differently licensed practitioners reviewing each other must be privileged to provide similar services to similar patients. And two, prevailing laws must permit peer review by differently licensed practitioners. So Triple uh, HC goes on to say, each physician, dentist, or healthcare professional is, re is reviewed by at least one similarly privileged and or similarly licensed peer. So that's why you, you can't have uh, a physician's assistant, for example, doing a peer review of a, of a surgeon. Privileged healthcare professionals participate in the development and application of the peer review criteria used to evaluate the care they provide. And that, again, is important. If you want to get buy-in from your medical staff, you're going to have to uh, have them participate in putting together that criteria. And if they complain about 
the review process, this is the best way for them to become, you know, more involved in it is by pointing out, well, listen, you know, if you give us some, you know, some suggestions, we would be glad to consider that in the peer review program. So elements of these accreditation standards that uh, AAAC would expect to see is clinical care selected for review on an ongoing basis. So this isn't something that you just do every once in a while. The selection process for care to be reviewed applies to all similarly privileged healthcare professionals. All clinical incidents are reviewed in accordance with the organization's peer review policies and procedures. And all peer privileged healthcare professionals are reviewed at least annually by a peer or supervising healthcare professional. So in the case of AAAC at least, this has to be something that is done on an annual basis. It has to be done regularly. And ongoing monitoring of important aspects of care provided by physicians, dentists, and other healthcare professionals are conducted. And that data is periodically evaluated to identify trends or occurrences that affect patient care. In other words, what we call internal benchmarking. And the data is used to establish internal benchmarks against which performance is compared to identify areas in which improvement is needed. And most importantly here, the results of the peer review is used as part of the process for uh, granting privilege or continuing clinical privileges, as described in, in other sections of the accreditation manual. And, of course, ref- this actually refers directly back to the CMS conditions for coverage. Mm-hmm. Now, Joint Commission is a little more complex, so I'm going to make Sue do that. <laughs> so, Joint Commission Chapter of Human Resources, so HR.02.01.03, the organization grants initial, renewed, or revised clinical privileges to individuals who are permitted by law in the organization to practice independently. Before the organization can grant privileges, it must ascertain that the licensed independent practitioners have the necessary credentials to perform their privileges. To grant privileges to licensed independent practitioners, the organization must collect, verify, and assess information related to current competence, and the ability to perform the clinical privileges that they have requested. It goes on to say, before granting initial, renewed, or revised privileges to a licensed independent practitioner, the following occurs. The organization's leadership documents current evidence, which includes peer and or faculty recommendations, of the individual's ability to perform the privileges requested. And continuing... Before granting initial, renewed, or revised privileges to a licensed independent practitioner, the following occurs. The organization reviews information from any of the organization's performance improvement activities pertaining to to professional performance, judgment, and continuing, it states, before granting initial, renewed, or revised privileges to a licensed independent practitioner, the following occurs. The organization evaluates the results of any peer review of the individual's clinical performance. Before granting initial, renewed, or revised privileges to licensed independent practitioner, the following occurs. The organization reviews any clinical performance in the organization that is outside acceptable standards. So couldn't we just have put that first two lines (laughs) and then put bullet points (laughs) What our listeners don't know, too, is that there's a couple things that we had to cut and uh, and paste in. Like, how many times did you say uh, as certain instead of ascertain? Yes. <laughs> I mean, That's what's for, coming out wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's just the, the phraseology, I think, yeah. is very difficult. And, and uh, I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, in, in joint commission, and we have a lot of centers mm-hmm. that are joint commission. Uh, but it does go to show how, and I'm just sorry to be blunt about this, how HHC is a lot more succinct about the requirements than perhaps joint commission is here. But in, a, in in truth, they're all they're both saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So 
And so what is peer review? So let's let's make one thing very clear right from the very beginning. Peer review has to have buy-in and input from the medical staff that's being reviewed. Without it, you're just not going to be successful in this. And as all of us administrators that have been doing this for a very long time know, getting buy-in, getting the physicians to take this seriously is very difficult. I actually had a discussion a couple days ago with uh, a center who was arguing with me about peer review. This is this is a center that uh, is considering becoming a client of ours. And they said, you know, we really don't need to do peer review because these doctors have been working here for 20 years. They all know each other and they're all the best doctors in the community. And I said, that's all well and good, but how do you prove that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that she's a liar by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. All I'm saying is that peer review is taking information and proving that yeah. they're they're exactly what they mm-hmm. they are sure they are, and you know we have to have. I mean, it's it's no different than what doctors have to do in order to prove that a vaccine is mm-hmm. is appropriate. Um, you're not going to just say, "Listen, we've been creating these vaccines for the last 20 years. Trust us, they'll be fine." They need to have the proof, no matter yeah. how old or how long this has been going on. So, I know it's frustrating. I know the doctors don't like to review each other, and I know that there's a lot of politics involved in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- politics with a small p, uh, because people don't ever want to be, you know, criticized, you mm-hmm. know, for anything that's uh, yeah. that might be wrong. But but in very good peer review programs, so and you've seen this because you look at a lot of the records too. Mm-hmm. What we find is that you know people that take this process seriously, um, it becomes a very collegial. Mm-hmm. Um, effort there where people say, hey, listen, you know, that was fascinating how you did that procedure. Um, you know, have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, again, we're not saying by any stretch of the imagination that um, we're doing peer review because we think we got bad players there. Um, we're doing it because we need to prove that these people continue, should continue to be uh, mm-hmm. part of the of the program, you know, be continue to be uh, recredentialed. Yeah. And most people can there's always room for some improvement. Yeah. The problem that I have too, Sue, with with organizations that do make that argument is mm-hmm. I'm not sure they completely understand the whole quality improvement process yeah. or the importance of quality improvement. You know, we take it so seriously. You know, look what we do with the podcast. You know, we've been listening to our listeners to try to figure out ways to improve. You know, we've got <laughs> we've got a list of all kinds of things that we we need to do over the next year. Um, you know, we do that in our own services, and we certainly expect that of our organizations. We want to see proof that they really are taking this seriously, and they really want to do this. I don't want to see people, and I'm hoping that our listeners have the same mindset, that you're going into this process hoping to truly improve the quality, that mm-hmm. you're not just doing it in order to pass a survey. And I think another important thing that we have to understand about peer review, it is more, much more than just a retrospective clinical review of medical records. And that is a lot of times what people feel. And I think that's where doctors get into problems with this or concerns Mm -hmm. about it, is that it's not just one doctor looking at another doctor's chart. There's so many other things that really are involved in peer review and that need to be part of that decision-making matrix uh, when you recredential people. So... Examples, and Sue, maybe we'll just go back and forth on some of these here. You know, for, so examples of additional areas that you want to review as part of peer review is post-operative infections, uh, drug events such as uh, adverse drug reactions and improper drug administration or utilization. And complications and unplanned outcomes, including returns to surgery, hospital transfers, or admissions to hospital emergency room or floors within 24 hours. Uh, adverse complications, or uh, another term is sentinel events if we're talking about Mm -hmm. uh, joint commission, Uh, malpractice suits, patient satisfaction and complaints or grievances. And staff complaints and issues. 
timely chart completion, cancellations on the day of surgery. For example, an excessive amount might show inappropriate scheduling of patients. Right. So those are that's just a list of ideas that you have. But you need to put together as part of your peer review process uh, a list of those things that you're going to be tracking. And anybody that's acutely uh, paid attention to us, which I'm sure every single one of our <laughs> listeners was, um, will note that all of those things that we're gathering there are part of the quality improvement process. So really what we're doing here is we're just taking all that information that we're gathering as part of quality improvement and doing it on a physician level uh, so that we can prepare you know, uh, some type of a summary, which gets to the next point, which is you need to be summarizing all of this information in some manner. Um, now, we in our company use the term physician report card, uh, mainly because I think I just like to to uh, get the doctors <laughs> angry. Uh, I, I don't know. It's not really a term that, uh, um, that goes over very well with most doctors. We get quite a bit of resistance. But uh, I use that term because, you know, we as administrators can at least banter it around ourselves. But often, it, you know, they might attach a name like physician annual summary. Whatever name that you're going to choose to call it, uh, the report should summarize all of those things that we just talked about. And usually um, doing it annually is best um, as that's required by Triple HC. Not everybody requires it that frequently, but I always feel like, and I know we've talked about doing something on a really regular right. basis, then, then you're less likely to fall behind. Or, or forget about it. Mm -hmm, uh, we mm -hmm. know that uh, things that are on an annual cycle really get done, um, yeah. and they'll be part of your your normal uh, process, and you won't be, and, and you're not going to be struggling or, or scrambling every two years in order to get that yeah. done. And you won't miss if, if there was an issue. You're not going to miss all the signs if the, if it's a more subtle issue to right. want to bring up. It's important to to protect the reviewers because I think. Um, so a, a well-run quality improvement program, a well-run peer review mm -hmm. program is going to uh, not be discoverable in the event of, an, of a, uh, a lawsuit in most states. There are some exceptions, unfortunately, to that in some parts of the country. But uh, I, as I've mentioned before, I do some medical legal work. And, and uh, even as the expert witness, I'm not allowed to see peer review information or quality improvement information uh, because they don't want that information to get out as part of this. And, and that's an important part of peer review is understanding that, that you're protected in doing these reviews and mm -hmm. that this is a good thing. And the government recognizes that in the regulations and in the law so yeah. that there is a, a an opportunity for people to do this evaluation without uh, a concern that they're going to get into legal trouble, yeah. uh, at least not through the peer review process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be a way of protecting each other, really, if they're noticing things or trends or some something they have questions about, if they can bring it up in a um, helpful way. Right. You know, a non- confrontational way, then it may save some problems farther on. So unfortunately, the elephant in the room here is the fact that most of the doctors that work, I don't, that's probably not fair to say most, that's really not accurate, but but many of the doctors that we uh, work with in surgery centers mm -hmm. just really don't want to do this. And, and, and I, I know the reasons, and some of them yeah. are legitimate. I don't have the time. I'm so yeah. busy. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, mm -hmm. nobody has time to do anything right now, uh, at least not when we're, we're working. And, and I do understand that, but it, it is an important part of our process. It's an important uh, means of assuring that, you know, we do maintain high quality care in our organizations. And of course, mm -hmm. You know, every this is one of the reasons that I'm I'm so passionate about what I do is that I'm concerned that you know a few uh, bad actors out there can really 
make for a bad reputation for our industry. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can demonstrate to the outside world that we are able to do good self-policing of our peer review process and to have these processes in place and mm -hmm. we take it seriously, the more that the, uh, you know, the, uh, the healthcare industry and, and patients will take us seriously also. And the bottom line, it's required. It right? is required. So. That's right. So if all else fails, <laughs> at least tell them they have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll uh, go over our quick list of upcoming events in the ASC industry, which seems to be getting smaller and smaller. So <laughs> we'll be right back. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. Now, since the New Jersey Association has been very good about providing me information about their upcoming general <laughs> membership meeting, I thought I would spend more time than normal on uh, one of these, maybe uh, encourage other organizations to get us this information. Now, one of the reasons that they've been so good about it is because I'm speaking there. Mm -hmm. The New Jersey Association of Amatory Surgery Center's virtual general membership meeting is January 20th, 2021, uh, and it goes from about 11 a.m. through uh, about 3.30, and it's all virtual this year. And there's a number of wonderful sessions, including a, a welcome from our dear friend Jeff Shanton, who's been on our podcast before, mm -hmm. a regulatory and legislative update, an update from the Office of Civil Rights, a HIPAA regulator, a talking about compliance priorities for 2020 and beyond, a section on or a segment on ASC budgeting, a program called Managing Your AR and Keeping Your Receivables Under Control by, by this strange gentleman by the name of John Gailey, uh, Coding's Impact on ASC Revenue Cycle Performance. Uh, there's going to be a break and then some you know, opportunities to meet with uh, vendors. Then a discussion about preparing for a survey with the New Jersey Department of Health. What a great opportunity mm -hmm. uh, to find out what they're up to. Uh, discussion about how staffing models in healthcare have changed due to the COVID-19 crisis. That'll be interesting. Uh, discussion about proactive steps to position your ASC for successful payer negotiations. And then finishing with an ASC technology trends in 2021 with our dear friend Nelson Gomes. And ASCA 2021 is virtual again this year, um, April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. The same content, but it will be delivered virtually. And... We are hoping to get back in person soon. Yeah, and I'm doing. I think I'm doing two sessions. I I am a little confused right now. I I didn't write this down, but I believe I'm doing two sessions for mm -hmm. this uh, this conference uh, in April. I guess I better write those <laughs> those slides. And then the uh, 2021 Virtual Infection Prevention for ASCs seminar is February 1st and 2nd. Uh, Lori Rodericks. Uh, one of our, our guests here on the podcast a couple episodes ago was uh, going to be one of the speakers. And uh, with this conference, you get resources you need to develop and maintain an infection prevention program that protects your patients and your ASC. And this course is comprised of two four-hour days and will also help you prepare for the uh, Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist Program, the CAPE program. In the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrator Seminar, March 1st and 2nd, and John will be one of the speakers. 
and it helps ASC leaders uh, to be well informed and prepared uh, prepared to meet all of the applicable federal regulatory requirements and accreditation organization standards. Uh, hear from expert faculty with extensive experience in ASC management as they discuss what ASC leaders need to know about compliance, finance, and quality management. And Sue, this program is actually the old uh, CASC review course, which they have you know rebranded, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, to focus a little bit more on on things that all ASC administrators need to know. And just to remind people of our credentialing workshop recorded live on December 8th, it is available by going to the ASC Podcast website at ASCPodcast.com. And we've got a lot of uh, really good uh, feedback about the credentialing workshop, and uh, all of our clients uh, are getting uh, access to this for free. But if you are not a client and are interested, uh, definitely uh, listen to it. It's a full-day uh, workshop, and uh, it's particularly helpful, Sue, I think we'll agree, you know, for the people to actually do the credentialing, I, though I, mm-hmm. I encourage administrators to listen to it also, but but this is really meant to be uh, down and dirty and a, a good discussion about how to actually do the work. And, of course, the Administrators Boot Camp is coming up. Uh, prepare for the challenges of ASC administration uh, by participating in the ASC Administrators Boot Camp. Uh, we do have one slot left for the winter cohort, uh, and then we will have another one scheduled for July. and not ready to announce the date yet, as well as a recorded module that will be available within the year. So this is a comprehensive program to prepare ASC administrators for the challenges of leading and managing an ambulatory surgery center. And this program really is designed for new administrators, administrators that wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. It is the industry's most comprehensive preparation for the role of the ASC administrator. And lastly, we just want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations, financial management resource to business administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources on the in the um, the patron program include access to some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts on services and books, and access for free for AEU credits. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including research staff, Travel cost to conference. I might as well just take that out. Travel cost to conferences, equipment mm-hmm. cost has, which is a big part of what we do here, mm-hmm. and production cost, which is also big. So for more information, you may visit asc-central.com. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming the patron by visiting that website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode will be Susan Cronkite. <laughs> Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, who is out right now uh, with uh, a, a child, but she will be back. Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman. any child. <laughs> is my grandchild, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alex <Sorry>. Borneman, <laughs> Zach Calaritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sue. She and Mike Noah, the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. 
For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.